Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. This week, you can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers part two of his sermon titled, What Wondrous Love Is This? Romans chapter 8, we'll we'll back up to verse 1 and read a little bit more of a section here in just a bit. A couple things to pass along to you while we're turning and transitioning. Um, Number of folks uh, joining the church right now. Um, So we're putting together another uh, new members class. I'm uh, meeting individually um, with those folks who want to join. We start off with just a conversation about the gospel and Uh, some of their story of how they came to faith in Christ. And uh, there's also a baptism coming up here soon. So we want to give the invitation. If anybody else is interested in joining, you can just come and talk with me and I'll explain the process uh, to you there. Um, And then as Holly mentioned, you know, we've been doing a great deal of praying for the Hickeys, uh, praying for uh, Jim Hickey specifically. He did pass this week. There were a great number of Christians um, who were praying. Um, I I suspect more than a hundred who were praying for him. So when the Lord chooses to do this, it is his will. It was not for lack of praying. God is sovereign. He has good purposes that he's bringing about because of this. Please remember to pray for the Hickeys, Logan, Elizabeth, Garrett, Abigail, Samuel, as this is a difficult time for them. Uh, My wife reminded me of uh, the passage of scripture where Jesus came to a man and he told him to come and follow me. And the man said, I will, but first let me bury my father. And Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead. As for you, you come follow me. Um, For all of us, there's a way, there's a sense in which we must obey that in willingness. And for some, there is a literal way. And this is a hard and difficult season for them. So please remember them in prayer. Let's turn our attention uh, to Romans 8. Um, I'm not going to read the whole chapter every single week, though there would be, there would be benefit to that. I'm going to back up and just um, read a few sporadic places in chapter 8 to remind us of the context, and then we'll read this section in 31 to 39. So back up to verse 1, and then I'll, I'll tell you some other verses to jump to. So Romans 1, beginning, excuse me, Romans 8, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jump down to verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we also may be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Jump down to verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. 
And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we come and ask for help. Please give us help. Give us the grace that we need to understand these truths and then to be transformed by them. Father, I, I pray for um, help for me to be able to preach and have the words to say, my mind to think, mouth to speak, all of those things, oh God, to just be useful to feed. You want to feed your people, help that to happen in this time. And then Lord, every faculty, every, just even the physical things of the ability to stay alert and pay attention all the way to the deepest spiritual things that we be brought to the, the, the very difficult kinds of um, applications from this text. Please, Lord, give the grace to accomplish all of it, Lord. Please send us your spirit. Please give light. Please bless our, our little children uh, back in this other room hearing your word, your gospel. Please open their eyes for salvation and, and give grace to us here in this room as well. Uh, Father, we love you. It's for your glory. We pray it. Please come now, O oh God, and we ask it through the name of Christ. Amen. William Wilberforce was elected to British Parliament in 1779, so you know, kind of get a, uh, a bit of an idea of your timeline there, 1779, at the age of 20 years old. He was um, not a genuine Christian when he was elected to government. He had been associated with some Christianity, may have even thought himself a Christian, but he was not genuinely following Christ at the age of 20. But about five years later, around his mid-20s, he, he was significantly influenced by some friends of his that he encountered who were genuine followers of Christ and challenged him in his nominalism. And he, he began a process that later he would refer to as uh, the great change, um, describing that whole process of God beginning to open his eyes and him come to uh, intellectually believe the gospel, then to place his faith in the Lord Jesus to, to be saved. And he began then a total life transformation, uh, a, a, a complete revolution in his life. He began to take obedience to God seriously. 
began to take worship seriously, began to significantly commit himself to the Lord in a real way. Uh, as a child, Wilberforce had actually met um, and been influenced by John Newton. So John Newton, that former slave ship uh, owner and worker who later repented of that evil and his, all of his sins, trusted in Christ, eventually became a pastor and wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. So John, that John Newton, Wilberforce, had met him as a child. Well, now that Wilberforce was a true follower of Christ, he decided to take a trip and visit Newton and, and to ask for some counsel. So he comes to Newton and he has some questions and one of the very specific questions that he asked John Newton was, should I leave politics? That dirty, underhanded, wicked world of politics. And John Newton told him, no. It, it, it is quite possible that the Lord has raised you up for such a time as this. Consider a way to serve and honor God in the position where God has put you. So Wilberforce took this counsel. He went home. For, for the next about two years, he did a great deal of uh, intensely studying the scriptures, seeking the Lord's face, growing in his faith, and deeply contemplating how he could serve God in this position. In, in, in this time, he, he actually memorized Psalm 119, you know, that longest chapter of the Bible. It's about the length of seven normal chapters. And every single morning as he would walk from his home uh, to work, he would recite Psalm 119 and just daily meditate meditate on the word of God. A little bit of background here as well. England at this time was a cesspool of immorality. Um, it, it had fallen far from its Puritan influenced days. So for instance, in the city of London alone, a full 25% of women. So one in every four women in the city of London was a, was a prostitute. Um, you know, just just kind of let that kind of immorality sink in. You know, we often look at our culture's digression and can think that it is hopeless. Look, God has redeemed an awful lot of dark cultures in history. England was in a terrible spiritual condition at this time. But perhaps, perhaps the, the darkest of the public evils that existed there was their involvement in the African slave trade. Now, on some other days... We'll, we'll talk about all that the Bible has to say on slavery and servitude because there is a lot to talk about. But without question, the African slave trade that was taking place here was vile, wicked, inhumane, based on kidnapping, man-stealing, and was an affront to God. And Wilberforce's heart began to break for these souls. It's another of the things that happens in the new birth. God begins to awaken compassion for souls. His heart began to break. He began to consider how he could use this place that God had put him in order to influence the nation, in order to turn public opinion. This is, this is one of the big things about the way that he went about his work. He was in a position to be involved in the enacting of laws, but he had a bigger goal. The bigger goal of turning the thinking of the nation to be opposed to it. But to say that this would be an uphill battle, that's an understatement. You know, when the masses have 
an opinion on something, changing the opinion of the masses, this is a monumental kind of work. You know, I, I would say that the work of overturning the, the, their laws that they had would be about as easy as implementing slavery again in this world, which is to say, if the whole nation wants something, changing those minds is a massive work. But he began, he, he resolved, he committed himself to this work, that this is what he would give his life to. He began the work of trying to turn the minds of the people. You can imagine the reactions. Uh, a great many Christians began to get on board and support and rejoice in what he was doing. By, by the way, Spurgeon would mention William Wilberforce's uh, name uh, even in his sermons and such. But men of the earth despised him. In the early stages of his battle, John Wesley, uh, John Wesley, that mighty man of the gospel, uh, wrote Wilberforce a, a letter literally from his deathbed. So Wesley, just days before he would pass from this earth, he wrote this letter to William Wilberforce. So, so listen, he said, dear sir, Unless the divine power has raised you up to be as Athanasius contramundum that is against the world, I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in exposing, opposing that accessible villainy, which is the scandal of religion, of England, and of human nature. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by opposition of men and devils. But if God before you, who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might till even American slavery, the vilest that ever saw the sun shall vanish away before it. That he who has guided you from youth up may continue to strengthen you in this and all things is the prayer of dear sir, your affectionate servant, John Wesley. Now I want you to notice what Wesley said to him. He said, the work you are setting out to do, if, if, if this is merely in your human strength, it will be impossible. You will not do it because you will eventually be worn out. You will eventually quit from the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, then who can be against you? Wilberforce did indeed live a life of opposition opposition from all around him. He was slandered. He was accused. He was judged. He was hated. His life was threatened. Like you, you got to know multitudes wanted the man dead on both sides of the ocean. Multitudes wanted him dead. Politicians wanted him dead. You go messing with politicians, pocketbooks, the knives in the dark will come out. People wanted him dead. They hated him. He lived a life of opposition and slander. But every morning he would walk to work and he would quote Psalm 119 and he would encourage himself and strengthen himself in the Lord. At the end of his life, he had been used of God to influence the nation. So, you know, this is one of the, re the, the glorious things that happened. He was successful. It took him his entire life, took his entire life. And, and by the grace of God, he was used not only in this, not only in the passing of laws, but in the changing of public opinion. 
He awakened people's consciences to the evil of this practice. And also this, a number, an impressive number of other significant reforms of society were accomplished. I don't think it's exaggerating to say that he accomplished with his life more than 50 times what many do. But here's, here's, why I, here's why I bring up his account. You can probably already see where I'm going. Foundational. Foundational to how he made it. To how he wasn't worn out. To how he didn't quit, but kept persevering. Were the truths of Romans 8. Foundational were these truths that John Wesley wrote to him. If God is for us, then who is against us? And who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. We began this passage last weekend. And we noted that in this section, 31 to 39, there are four primary truths that are taught here. Everything else is supporting and explaining these four big truths. So last week we considered if God is for us, then who is against us? This week we considered this second of these primary truths. And it is, no one can condemn you if God has justified you. No one can condemn you if God has justified you. I'm going to divide my time into two main parts. First, I'm just going to take the text, look at what it says, face value, and just simply explain what is here. And then in the second part, I, I want to try, I want to try to preach. So this is a lot of what preaching is. I want to try to herald its beauty. We want to try to preach its significance and, and begin the, the work of applying it to ourselves. So first, just notice the language. Look at verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Notice the language of elect there. That word has come up um, or been discussed. The truth has been discussed in Romans 8 here back in 29 and 30. The word is not specifically used, but we were told those whom God foreknew, he predestined, and those he predestined, he called in order to be justified and glorified. The elect are those who have been predestined by God. So who will bring a charge against God's elect? Again, the answer is similar to what we saw in verses 31 and 39 last week. The answer is tons of people may and will bring charges against the people of God. But here's the point. Their charges amount to nothing. In eternity, when it actually matters, their charges carry no weight. They don't matter because God is the one who justifies definitively. In eternity, men will condemn and approve, but they are only able to do so now. That their judgments carry no weight in eternity. God is the one who sits on the throne of glory in the courtroom of the last day. So next, who is the one who condemns? So similar kind of idea here. Remember that condemn, condemnation, this is a legal word. It was a legal word then. It's a legal word now. If you're found guilty, if you're sentenced uh, from a, uh, to a punishment, and particularly the death penalty, the ultimate death penalty is in view here, then that is condemnation. But when we're talking about God's courtroom, condemnation 
in the courtroom of the living God. That is the same as damnation to be sentenced to hell. So who is the one who condemns? Well, notice the answer. Christ Jesus is he who died. What's the significance here? Here's the point. The point is that the very one who determines your fate, the very one who is going to give you your sentence of eternity is the very one who died for all who are in him, for the elect, for all who are in Christ. Your judge is also your savior. So so the message of the gospel is that because we are sinners condemned uh, by breaking the law of God, there is a sacrifice that was needed, a sacrifice that was needed. uh, Someone needed to take your place to save you from hell, the condemnation that you deserved. So God provided a lamb. God provided a sacrifice. There was one that the, uh, the wrath for sin, condemnation was put on him. Well, the very him, the very sacrifice, When you come to the day of judgment, that is him. Your very sacrifice is also the judge, the one you will stand before. So not only did God provide for you the sacrifice that you need, but it is the judge himself who hung on the cross for you. So that's the sense of what he is saying there. God is the one who justifies And Jesus, the son of God is the one who does the judging on the last day. So that's another biblical point there. Matthew 25 and other places show us when you come to the day of judgment, it is not just that you will stand before God, the father, you are standing before the Lord Jesus on the throne of glory. All authority has been given to the son. All judgment has been given to the son. You are answering to the Lord Jesus himself. And he himself is the one who died for us. And so what it means, Christian, this is preaching to our conscience. This is preaching to our souls. If you are in Christ... Breathe the sweet, beautiful, clean, free air of grace. You are golden because your savior, the one who hung on the cross, he's the one you answer to. He's the one you'll stand before. If you stand before the one who bled for you, he's not going to undo the merits of his suffering. He is not going to waste his blood. Your lamb is also your judge. And this is good news for those who run to Christ for refuge. Now, if you continue in verse 34, there's, there's more that is stated here. And every single phrase is meant to preach hope to our souls. And so, and so, so watch it. Who, who's the one who condemns? He answers, Christ Jesus is he who died. So we just considered that, but there's more. Look what he says next. Yes, rather, who was raised? Who was raised? Okay, so now consider this. There's there's an even more hopeful truth that is preached here. It's a truth that's similar to the one, uh, a truth that was made back in Romans 5. Okay, Jesus died for you. That is glorious. He accomplished the atonement for our sins. But there's a greater hope because this one who died 
also raised from the dead. He's alive. And so if it cost him much to die for you, and it did, then you can be certain that with his life, he will ensure that you are saved. So, do you understand the point that's being made there? He died for your atonement, but he is not dead any longer. He is alive. If he's alive, then he will most certainly make sure you are kept, you are secure, and grace is given. If he saved you by his death, even more, he will save you by his life. Now continue to keep going through the rest of the verse. Next phrase, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So, so follow it. The very one who died for your atonement is your judge, and he raised to life. And now thirdly, he is at the right hand of the Father. Jesus, your lamb, your judge, your savior, is in the place and position of supremacy over the cosmos. The one who died for you is the one who, Hebrews 1.3, upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus is in the place and position of ruling the cosmos. That's good news. He is in this place of power. And as he sits there at the right hand of the Father, he is doing something. And this is the fourth thing. So I want you to notice that in this verse, there are four truths that are shown that are preaching the glory and how we have nothing to fear. First, Jesus died for you. Second, he raised to life. Third, he sits at the right hand of the Father in supremacy. And fourth, he is interceding on our behalf. As he sits there at the right hand of the Father, he is doing something. He's interceding. Now, what is this intercession? What, what, what does this intercession look like? What, what is he actually doing? Well, let me, let me first of all kind of introduce it by saying there is great mystery here, okay? There is great mystery. There are times where the Bible shows us something deep and complex is going on here beyond what you and I can comprehend. And so the Bible will, in simple, human, finite kinds of language, give us some explanation and understanding, but we know that the fullness of it is something much deeper than this. But here is what we are shown. As Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, he is doing for us now what he did in John 17 on the night that he prayed for his people down through the centuries, the night that he was betrayed. Jesus is petitioning the Father for all of the grace that we need. He tells us to come to the Father through him, that we pray in his name. We pray through our high priest. And then additionally, there is also this reality that I believe the book of Hebrews alludes to that Jesus's presence seated at the right hand of the father, the lamb who was slain, his presence is a continual assurance to us, okay, that the father will always remember the work, the blood, the suffering of his son. 
It's a reassurance to us because it's not like the father is going to forget. It's not like father forgets and looks at Jesus like, oh yeah, I forgot. We're saving people here. That's not the reality. But his continual presence with his nail scarred hands, his wounds, his scars, which remain and are glorious is a continual reminder to us. The father will never forget the work of his son in redemption. Jesus is always there at the right hand of the father, living to be our intercessor and his wounds are preaching. His scars are preaching the continuous salvation of his people. Parenthesis. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. You need no priest, no pope, no confessional booth. You do not need Mary. You do not need any other dead human to pray to in order to come to the living God. You have your mediator. You have your priest. His name is the Lord Jesus. It is an utter absurdity and blasphemous insult to the Lord Jesus to invent all of this nonsense about needing Mary or dead saints or praying to statues for crying out loud in order to come to the living God. You have your priest. God has provided you your mediator. His name is Jesus. Cut out all the other middlemen. It's an insult and a blasphemy to the God who has given his son to his people in parenthesis. What these verses mean is that Christian, you do not need to fear condemnation. You do not need to fear condemnation. You do not need to fear condemnation from God. You do not need to fear condemnation from men. You do not need to fear accusations, slanders, charges, judgments, or even just general scowls of disapproval. We do not need to fear them. The only one in the cosmos who matters is the one who died for you and the one who justified you. Your eternal full justification, your eternal freedom, your eternal joy, your eternal acceptance, your eternal life are assured to you by God. So we do not need to fear earthly judgments, earthly charges, earthly insults. We do not need to fear the world hating us or wishing us dead. We do not even need to fear legal charges brought against us because our savior is our judge. Our judge has ransomed us with his blood in eternity. You are justified and free. So do not fear men's wrath. All right. So that is just the general explanation. Now I want to try to preach its significance and do the work of applying it. The apostles and the early Christians were no strangers to accusations, no strangers to charges. In the book of Acts, we see it come up quite a bit. In the early chapters, we see Peter and James and John brought before the Sanhedrin, scolded, warned not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. They were beaten. And then when they walked home, do you, do you remember their reaction? They rejoiced. They rejoiced that they had been counted worthy to suffer for the sake of the name. How do you do that? How do you, how do you think like that? What truths have to be rooted down in the soul so that you can rejoice after getting a beating? 
It is these truths all through church history, and that includes today, uh, never fall for the delusion that just because something's not happening in our little corner of the world, okay, that that means everything else is hunky-dory or, or what just like it is here, including today, believers have and continue to face legal charges for following Christ. We have been praying for a, uh, I'll just use code, Mr. L, who has been charged with conspiracy to commit treason uh, against the state in China. It's a regular charge that Christians are, um, are charged with in China. They, are, uh, they oftentimes use the language of being disappeared because they are captured. And then they're placed in concentration camps where crimes against humanity are committed and nobody's doing a thing about it because politicians largely live to fill their pockets instead of honor God. Woe unto them who do so. The way of the world is in opposition to the way of Christ. The way of the world is in opposition to the way of Christ. Listen, Jesus said, the customs, the character, the actions, the lifestyle, the loves, the treasures, the desires, the beliefs of the world, it is always contrary to the way of God. If you're new to studying the Bible, I get it. That's kind of a shocking new revelation. It was for most of us when we turned to Christ, but this is the reality that scripture shows. If you are going to follow Christ, what happens is yet another of the transformations of life is that we leave the old way of thinking and loving and treasuring and acting and behaving and we conform ourselves to the way of Christ, which means Christian, part of the conversion, part of what repentance is, is the transformation of aligning ourselves with Christ. He invites us, come follow me. We align ourselves with Christ and that means you oppose the world and the world opposes you. There is no other way about it. If you are not opposing the world, you are not in Christ. Book of James, friendship with the world is enmity towards God. You cannot be both a friend of Jesus and a friend of the world. You have to choose one or the other. When we align ourselves with Christ, we oppose the world and the world opposes us. So here's what that means. What that means is that oftentimes, Legal charges are brought against believers. We have also been praying for a pastor up in Canada, Pastor James Coates. We are thankful to God for his courage and his leadership. He was arrested for the crime of holding a worship service while that government was trying to impose COVID lockdowns. He was bound hand and foot, placed in solitary confinement, and is still awaiting uh, to see if he will be released. Men of whom the world is not worthy. If you align yourself with Christ, you will oppose the world and the world will oppose you. And sometimes this means legal charges. But understand that legal charges are not the only thing in view here. There are also just the charges, accusations, slanders, judgments of men hurled against believers that are not legal in nature. They're just meant to deface humiliate, even ruin. But then there are also charges that come from unhuman sources. Revelation 12 calls Satan the accuser of the brethren. 
the accuser of the brethren. How, how does he do this? Let, let, me, let me tell you three ways that he does this. First, never forget that the Bible shows he is involved in regularly the daily affairs of this life. Demons are always working on souls, tempting. The, the book of Acts tells us that demons have the ability to introduce thoughts into human hearts. Some of the ways that he accuses believers, some of the ways that uh, Satan makes war against the church is by influencing wicked men of this earth to bring slander and accusations against believers on earth. So that is part of it. But here's a second way. He accuses believers in the heavenly realm. In the heavenly realm. In the book of Job, we see Satan slandering Job to God and in the presence of the angels. We also see this in the book of Zechariah. There's a really clear uh, picture in Zechariah. Sometime um, I encourage you to read maybe this afternoon, Zechariah chapter three. The prophet was shown a vision of the man who was the high priest at that time. His name was Joshua, not, not the Joshua from earlier in the Old Testament, but Joshua, the high priest. And I believe that Zechariah chapter three was meant to be read to Joshua, the high priest, to encourage him to strengthen his hands for the work that he was engaged in. They were still rebuilding the temple at that time and it was tumultuous days. But here, here's the vision that Zechariah was given. Joshua stands before the Lord and Satan comes to his side and is accusing him before God. Joshua stands before the Lord and he is dressed in filthy rags, representing his sin. You know, scripture even says that our best righteousness, the best you can do on your best day, your holiest moment ever, is as filthy rags before the living God. Joshua stands before the Lord. Satan is accusing him. Satan is hollering out all of his sins, all of his disgusting uh, acts of his past and pointing out to God all of his stains. Look at his rags. But then here's what happens. Instead of condemning Joshua, you know, we take it that he was a man who trusted in the Lord, had turned to God in genuine faith. Instead of condemning him, God orders that his robes be stripped off. The filthy rags are removed. And instead, what God does is he throws around him new, clean linen, fine linen, bright and clean. He is now wrapped in robes that are clean so that now when Joshua stands before God, Satan may hurl accusations, but they mean nothing. And he is now clean before God. Christian, this is a picture of justification. This is another Old Testament picture and explanation of what justification is. So this is yet another metaphor. What, what is it to be justified? Well, imagine you standing before God and your robes are filthy. Your robes are vile. Satan is hurling all the accusations of all of your past sins and with a smile of grace, God removes the robes and he wraps around a new robe and the new robe has a name. The name of the new robe is the righteousness of Christ. It is the righteousness, not that you accomplish, you, you got nothing. You, your, your, your best righteousness is as filthy minstrel claws, the book of Isaiah says, that's your best. But Jesus lived a life of obedience to the law of God. 
And by turning to him, by placing your faith in Christ, the dirty robes are removed and the robe of Christ's righteousness is wrapped around you and you now stand before God clean. Before the throne of God, you are justified in the great courtroom. You are wrapped in the robes of righteousness, which you receive at the moment of turning to Christ, which means that Satan's accusations hold no weight. And then here's the third way that Satan accuses. He will accuse you to yourself in the courtroom of your own conscience, meaning those times where the weight of our, our guilt that the remembrance of our past sins, embarrassment and shame, sometimes crushing shame that comes over us from our past. That, that is your enemy trying to crush you with despair. He's trying to paralyze you. And, and so understand, di diff different personalities wrestle with this in different ways. There are some Christians that this only lightly bothers them and they get over it kind of quickly. But there are some Christians that this becomes like the great mountain of difficulty of their entire life. There are some believers that this is like what crushes them on a regular and daily basis. It, Satan is introducing the thoughts of reminding of the shame, the guilt, the embarrassment, all of this. And it causes some to just eke through life, always despising themselves. And so here's the point of what is made in the verses. All of these men and demons and even yourself will bring accusations and charges, but they matter nothing. God is the one who justifies. Christ Jesus is he who died. So if you are one of the Christians that really wrestles with, with guilt and shame from your past, you, you need to understand that that's not godly. See, and see, it's one of the lies, and you can see how it can kind of sound spiritual. Satan will introduce the thought, now that you learn about how wicked and terrible sin is, you know, that's a revelation that comes from the Bible. Then the thought can come, man, I am just so awful. God just must just despise and hate and hate me and be disgusted with me. I am just awful and loathsome and terrible. And then to think that hating yourself is a good thing. To think that punishing yourself with your guilt and your shame is a good thing. What this passage is preaching is, no, 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 that's not godly. That's a misunderstanding of the gospel. God has wrapped you in clean robes of righteousness. And if you are in Christ, walk as sons and daughters of God, rejoice in your cleansing, rejoice in your acceptance. All of the people who hurl accusations, they do not sit on the throne of glory. God does. Jesus is the one that you will stand before. Christian, the day of judgment will be like a courtroom. I say this also to those in the room that are not believers. The day of judgment will be like a courtroom. Our process on earth, okay, where we have a, a trial with evidence, judge, sentence. You gotta got understand that's given to us in the Bible. Our process on earth is an image of what exists in heaven. It's a distorted image on earth because no culture does it right. But it's an image of what exists in heaven. The day of judgment will be a day of law and justice because that's righteous. God is righteous. God does not wink at sin. He does not overlook sin. 
He's righteous and therefore all souls of all nations from all time will stand before him and will give account. Stand before the Lord Jesus. You got to understand you will never understand the meaning of life until you comprehend this is your end. This is where you are heading. The great day where your life is evaluated. If you live for the approval of men, you will, you will waste your life because you are heading towards that day when the great judge will evaluate you. There will be no snickering. There will be no too cool for school rebels who laugh and make jokes. All of the fake religion and country song theology will mean precisely squat on that day as all stand before the Lamb. The gaze of the Lamb who is holy, holy, holy. Scripture says that men will long for the mountains to crush them, to hide them from the gaze of the Lamb. Fear before the one who concludes their fate will silence every mouth. There will be no excuses, no arguing. Romans 3 says every mouth will be shut. The Psalms and the prophets describe this day and say that the mountains will tremble before him. Earth and heaven wants to flee from his presence and fire announces his entrance. The days of thinking lightly of God from that point forward in all of history, they're over. They're done. The days of mocking his word and maligning him, the days of making fun and the snickers, it will all be over. Never again, never again will the word of God be mocked. Because in the presence of the one who is holy, 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 no one has the courage to mock him to his face or to talk back. It will be a day of justice. And by justice, we mean actual justice. Not man's distorted version of it, but before the one who is impartial and unyielding, the God of righteousness. No bribes, no backroom good old boy deals, no favoritism because of your tax bracket, color of skin, or anything else. Impartial, unyielding, and completely righteous. And this is the problem for sinners. This is the problem for sinners. Because Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. First John says that if any man says that he's not a sinner, he lies. And so he adds to his sin. We're lawbreakers and of the law that is higher than man's of the law of God. And sin is either breaking or in some way falling short of the glory of the fullness of keeping any part of the law of God. And the book of James says that if you break the law of God in any one place, you have broken it. Meaning that the day of judgment will be very different than the distorted cartoonist versions that people imagine it to be from here. On that day, it will not be that your good works and your bad works are put on a scale and there's this kind of weighing that takes place. That is a distortion of the gospel. And that's also not how judgment is rendered here on earth. That's not how our trials go on earth. When, 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 when someone commits murder and the man is arrested and caught, what is his trial about? Is his trial about, well, let's look back into his childhood and let's try to weigh all of his good works worth bad works. That's not what happens. The trial is about, did he? commit the crime. 
And if the answer is yes, then punishment comes. Listen, guys, that's justice. That's justice. You and I have broken the law of God. We have broken the law of God and we do so regularly, which means we are unfit for eternal life, which means that we deserve punishment. Where that leaves us on our own, so this is before Christ, is condemned before God. The gospel, the gospel is that God made a way to give grace and mercy. God made a way to uphold justice and righteousness and to give mercy to all who will place their faith in his son, the Lord Jesus. Jesus took the sin, the guilt, and the sorrow of sin. He took condemnation onto himself. He took your filthy rags and they were all thrown onto Christ, onto his shoulders on the, on the cross. And by faith at that justification, that being made right with God, we are wrapped with the robes of Christ's righteousness. So here's what this means for you who are in Christ. You show up to the day of judgment already pardoned. You have already been promised by the judge that you are justified, that you are freed. Your record is wiped. You are justified. You are eternally justified. Now on other days, we'll talk about the fact that we will still give account of our lives and there will be rewards and loss of rewards. That's a different day. Here, what is in view is your eternal legal justification. So here's the difference that this makes Christians. Okay. So I know I've been going for a little while. Stay with me for the last finale. Okay. Here's the difference that this makes. When Satan crushes you with recollection of your sins, your guilt, and the shame, you are to preach these truths to yourself. God, who saved you and cleansed you, does not want you to live as though you are condemned. You are justified. Think of yourself as justified. Feel justified. Experience freedom of the forgiveness of sins within you. This is who you are. You are free in Christ. Know that you are free. Experience the freedom. Live with that freedom. And Christian, what, what if it comes that legal charges are brought against you? What hope do you have? It's the same hope that Stephen had in Acts 7 when the mob came against him. Do you remember this? The mob came against Stephen and they hurled their accusations against him. They claimed that he blasphemed God. They claimed that he broke the law. He had not. And like has happened thousands of times and continues, the law was twisted in order to condemn Christians. The mob came, but listen, Stephen's security was fixed in his standing with God. And therefore he had the resolute courage not to cower, not to compromise. You got to know Stephen could have walked away that day unharmed. Stephen could have placated that crowd and he would not. His beautiful courage was fixed in the foundation of his understanding of who he was in Christ. And so he spoke the gospel in all of its piercing conviction and they killed him for it. And even as he was dying, he prayed, Father, forgive them. That is the kind of courage that this truth can bring when we believe it and apply it. And when the crowds mock you, when the locker room makes fun of you, when the mean girl's lunch table gossips, 
When the internet trolls hurl their accusations, your identity and your security is in Christ as the foundation of your confidence. And so their, their slander means nothing. It doesn't define who you are. Their, their opinion of you is not God's opinion of you. Their accusations they hurl, that's not the definition of who you are. You are eternally justified. The only one who matters has pardoned you. The world slandered Jesus, they will slander you. The world hates the people of God no matter what we do. They hated John the Baptist because he lived one way and then Jesus lived another. Both honored God, but just in, you know, materially speaking, they lived different kinds of lives. They mocked John the Baptist and said, that guy's got a demon, that guy's nuts. And of Jesus, what did they say? He's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of sinners, okay? Which means it doesn't matter which way you go, you're going to be despised. When the world hates you and, and points out 15 things about you they hate, if you go change all of them and think, okay, well now, now I'm going to be a good witness because now I put on my cool kids' shoes. Now they're going to like me. I got the cool clothes now. They're going to find a different reason to make fun of you. Okay? Stop trying to be cool. The striving to be cool is a waste of life. Living for the approval of men is a waste. You have the approval of your God in Christ. The world is going to despise you. Christian, we are going to have to be okay with that. We are going to have to be okay with that and stop the effort of trying to be okay in their eyes. We're coming to a place where it, very likely, very probable, the church is going to be categorically labeled as racist because we reject godless ideologies like critical race theory. The church is going to be uh, called sexist and uh, accused of hating women because we oppose abortion, oppose feminism, and uphold the biblical view of marriage. What happens, teenagers, when you are in class, let's say in college, and your professor mocks the Bible and misrepresents some belief, and you're sitting there, and you know you should raise your hand and defend the word, but you look around, and there's 150 faces that are about to sneer at you in derision, will you speak? Will you stand for Christ? Or will, like a coward, will you slink in your chair and hope nobody looks at you. What Satan wants to do is paralyze us with fear. When we love the approval of men, then we fear greatly losing that approval. When we care nothing for the opinions of wicked men and all we care for is to delight our God, this is the foundation of our courage. The Bible is showing you here because you are right with God, you who are in Christ, you do not need to fear man. What can man do to me? They can bring some misery, but it is light and momentary. Definitively, you are in Christ and you are justified. Parents, when your kids hit middle school, and it's just human nature, middle school is terrible. Little depraved sinners ramp up their cruelty about their peak at that age. What happens when your kid begins to be made fun of, to be treated harshly, and it's just devastating them? 
they're all crushed and you come and you uh, meet beside them in their bed, what will you say? Well, we need to start an anti-bullying campaign and change some laws. No, if you're in Christ, you'll probably say something like, look, look, hon, look, I know it seems enormous now. I know it seems like it's such a big deal right now because this is your world. This is where you live. But I promise you're going to grow up. You're, you're going to gain confidence. And you're, you're going to look back on this and you're going to see it as small. And those people, what they say about you, their opinion, that's not who you are. That doesn't define you to the entire world. Adult Christian, let's apply the same truth to ourselves. The world may despise us. Our God accepts us. Our God has justified us. We are free in Christ. This has to be established as a foundational principle with, within our hearts. And so for you who are not following Christ, you need to know that there are charges against you. The world may love you. The world may have no problems with you. But if you have not come to Jesus to be saved, if you have not placed your faith in him and called on his name to save you, there are charges against you and the charges are from the law of God and you will not escape those charges. And on the day of judgment, you will not be able to bribe him. You will not be able to smile or pout your lips or do anything that will get him to change his mind in justice. You will answer for your sins and your law breaking if you do not have Christ. Look to Jesus place your faith in him, rest your hope in him, cry out and pray that he will save you and you will come to that day already pardoned. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the glory of this truth. Now, Lord, help us to do this next work. This, this is really difficult stuff to apply to ourselves, but help us to do it. Help us to apply this to ourselves, O oh God, so that we lose the fear of man and that we only care about your approval. So please give us your blessing. Give us your grace as we leave. And we, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND. Or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.